I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening to... uh those online and those in the room. And welcome to Shakespeare and Company in Paris for this very special event on the occasion of Ulysses' 100th birthday, because it was on the 2nd of February 1922 that Ulysses was published and was displayed in the window of Sylvia Beach's bookshop of the same name. Um, And here we are now, 100 years on, with, in fact, one of those first thousand Ulysseses, now owned by the current custodians of the Shakespeare and Company name. Um, And I'm very glad to be joined this evening by Tom McCarthy and Susan Phillips. Susan Phillips is an artist whose work deals with spatial properties of sound and the relationship between sound and architecture. She lives and works in Berlin and won the Turner Prize in 2010. Tom McCarthy also lives and works in Berlin and is the author of novels including Sea, Satin Island, and most recently, The Making of Incarnation, published last year. He also writes occasionally for the LRB, including a piece about Ulysses in 2014. More about that in a moment. Um, This event is the first in a series of events the LRB will be running throughout 2022 and maybe into the first weeks of 2023, uh, marking some of the many significant centenaries Um, of this year zero for literary modernism. Um, We're also about to publish a small book of pieces um, about some of those key moments with an introduction by Tom. Um, Today is also the day that Shakespeare and Company's really amazing uh, Ulysses podcast project launches, a complete reading of Ulysses, um, which will be published as podcast episodes between now and Bloomsday. Uh, It began at, I think, midnight last night with uh, Will Self reading the first 20 or so pages of Telemachus. Um, Final thing to say is that this isn't a conversation about Ulysses in really the purest sense. It's not a close reading. It's not a a sort of um, intense discussion of experts. The title we've given it is In the Wake of Ulysses, which is also the title of Tom's LRB piece. And it's really about a conversation with two practitioners talking about working in that wake, um, how Ulysses has fed into um, and inflected their work. Um, And so for really close textual discussion of particular scenes or what have you, I recommend 
the Shakespeare and Company podcast instead. Um, so to kick off, Tom, I thought perhaps you could read the opening paragraph of your LRB essay. Okay. Well, first of all, it's it's an honour to be here on this day. Thank you for Sylvia and everyone for inviting us. Um, <clears throat> okay. How do you write after Ulysses? That's the question. Whenever I sit down to write a novel, Anthony Burgess claimed, it is with a sense of despair because I never, I know I'll never match that book. It isn't just that Joyce writes better than anyone else, although he does. Beyond that, it's the sense that Ulysses's publication entails a kind of rapture for literature, an event in equal parts ecstatic and catastrophic, perhaps even apocalyptic. A certain naive realism is no longer possible after it, but hasn't every alternative, every avant-garde manoeuvre imaginable, also been anticipated and exhausted by it too? As though that weren't enough, Joyce returns to the scene of his own crime, arriving not incognito in the manner of his shady non-character Macintosh, but brazenly assuming the role of principal mourner, just as Ulysses was initially conceived as an extra chapter to Dubliners, Finnegan's Wake gestated as a 19th episode of Ulysses. We should not only consider all three works as part of a continuum whose critical moment, and I use this term in the dramatic sense, the sense of crisis, remains Ulysses, but also view Ulysses itself as a work whose own wake and that, perhaps, of the novel, to core, is already at work in it. What new patterning, what ploughing of the sea, could a writer envisage that would pattern independent of the ripple field already sent out by Joyce's churning up the sum of its mutating patterns? Derrida hits the nail on the head when he complains of Joyce's relentless hypermnesia that, as he puts it, a priori, indebts you, inscribes you in advance in the book you are reading. The future, he affirms, is reserved in it. That's the problem. <laughs> and I suppose the first question to ask, uh, the first question, Tom, to ask in light of that question is, how do you write after Ulysses? I like that metaphor of endless debt. I mean, you know, the question is, I mean, Joyce is obsessed with money in all his work and, and literature itself is almost like a legacy to be inherited or to be squandered or to be or, or an indebtedness. Um, and this plays out very explicitly in, in Ulysses, but also even more in, in Finnegan's Wake. But I think, you know, in the end, he, 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 he almost suggests that by acknowledging this endless debt, you also acquire an endless credit it makes everything possible there's a wonderful scene in ulysses where stephen the wannabe poet is arguing with the successful poet ae who's come out of some trite neoplatonic nonsense in the um national library and stephen knows he could take him down but he owes him money and then he goes actually but maybe it was another i that owes him because as aristotle says all the molecules change so maybe it wasn't me that borrowed the money and then in the end he says no i do i am indebted he goes ae I owe you, which is <laughs> it's the five letters, it's the vowels, right? It's his, that's his reserve and storehouse, the, 
the alphabet. You know, language becomes this kind of through acknowledging an indebtedness, he 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 kind of a, manages to find a kind of a, a possibility for some future something. And I think that's 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 I relate to that as a way of you know you're in Ulysses's wake, and that makes you impossibly indebted, but also infinitely possible. <laughs> It does make sense. And was uh, reading Ulysses for the first time, reading Joyce for the first time, an ecstatic, catastrophic, apocalyptic moment in your life? The first time I read it, I read it completely blind, like without any notes. And I thought it was a very sad book um, about unhappy marriages and unfulfilled possibilities. And then I read it almost immediately again again, with notes, with the Blameyers book, this is back in the late 80s. Now you have the internet. Um, and I thought it was a rapturous, ecstatic book. And then by the third time I read it, I realized I hadn't really been wrong the first time. It is, I mean, it's melancholic in the full, in the Freudian sense. It's like this unpleasurable, infectious, toxic, kind of contagious thing that is and and in the in the medieval sense of like melachole it's it's full of black bile it's the most base materialist book splattering this blackness everywhere which again is is kind of before we went on air we were talking about the link between gunpowder and ink that keeps coming up in ulysses and i think that's quite an important mm. i mean it begins you know he wakes it begins in a in a gun in a in a huge tower one of whose floors was for storing gunpowder <laughs> it's like a massive explosion and in fact the story behind it is that Joyce's flatmate fired a gun over his head while he had a gun inside a gun and then he goes to Trieste to write it which Marinetti called La Nostra Bella Polveraria you know our great gunpowder magazine there's something yes rapturous and ecstatic and explosive about it um, Susan would you describe your first encounter with Joyce as ecstatic well, I find it's well. It was the dead that I really had um, a big impact on me when I first read the Dubliners. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, it's not just because of its emotional and um, uh, impact, but also that I discovered that Joyce is really passionate about music and and song in particular, and especially that song, the song mm -hmm. "The Lass of Algram." So that's got that's the, the first. That's what got me hooked on Joyce. Mm -hmm. um, well, that leads neatly into um, something that we're going to be doing throughout the event this evening, which is um, interspersing conversation uh, with excerpts from Susan's works that have been inspired by Joyce. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about the about the dead um, and then we'll play a sure. clip from it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the dead. Um, well, as I said, Joyce loved to sing and I came across this quote by Joyce. Uh, je n'aime pas la musique, uh, j'aime le chant. I don't like music, I like singing. And, you know, and singing is, is in all of his writings. And um, But the, I suppose the the song from La, um, The Dead is the most famous song of all his writings. Uh, when... <clears throat> And uh, Joyce loved the song. Joyce would would sing it endlessly. They would mm -hmm. used to laugh at him how often he would sing this uh, Lass of Ogram at home. And um, yeah, so it, 
The Last of Ogrim, the song is a broken token song. There's a whole tradition of these broken token mm-hmm. songs. And um, it's uh, a, a broken token song is when uh, it's a, a, to- a broken token is when you exchange a token with um, your lover or maybe who's gone off to war for seven years and come back comes back and you don't recognize mm-hmm. them and they can prove who you are <laughs> or you know they, they sleep together and you can prove that, that you did that so in this case of the last of Ogram um, she comes with the token and her a baby in her arms but um, none will let her in she's left in the, in the cold with her baby and it's very sad the song and in fact Joy says of that song um, the tears come into my eyes and my voice trembles with emotion when I sing that lovely air. So, you know, but it was only when I saw the uh, movie uh, by John Huston, his really faithful adaptation of the dead, that I, I actually learned the songs. I didn't know the tune before. I just read, read it in the dead. And so that's the version that I know. And so what I've done is I've recorded me singing The Lass of Ogram over and over, but I'm singing it in a more of a, a kind of unselfconscious way, more retrospectively, um, to create a sense of solitude. Um, and also, I've I've left these pauses in between, um, where you also hear the ambient sounds of the room, distant hum of traffic, my own breath. So you you get a sense of my presence, uh, and then I've taken. Uh, so I sing it over and over, over a period of 20 minutes, and then I've, I've taken that recording and transposed it onto 35mm film and have that projected in in the um, darkened uh, gallery space in uh, Dublin, in the Irish Museum of Modern Art in, in Dublin. And uh, But I've also um, shown it in cinemas as, as well. But So... Um, yeah, so this voice, which is transposed onto the onto this black film stock, you don't. There's no imagery, but over time the film stock begins to deteriorate, and you see these blemishes, these scratches on the on the film, and you know, and and the film is starkly illuminated because it's black, but there's still a a, a presence of this. Like, I mean, it creates a kind of almost spectral presence of the, with the voice. Um, and I'm singing in the first person, the song's in the first person, so it's almost like I'm taking on this character of the Lass of Ogram. But then, um, but it, I was really inspired by the film as well, John Huston's adaptation, because the last scene, you know, when, when, um, okay, to explain, uh, um, the, the scene, the pivotal moment in the story is when they're leaving the, the, the party on the Feast of the Epiphany, yeah. and, and uh, Gabriel's waiting at the foot of the stairs, and and Greta but stops and she becomes enraptured by the sound of someone singing and uh, it's the song The Lass of Ogram and um, and he Ga- Ga- um, Gabriel can't hear it but she can hear it faintly and he's um, he's been encouraged to sing it all night but he refuses because his voice is hoarse and he doesn't remember all the words so he's but it just brings her back to this time where she knew Michael Fury who dies for her love and it just makes her um, and so her expression, that um, Gabrielle's um, captivated by her her expression, and how, but she's she she's in another place. She's with Michael Fury, like when she was a, uh, a when they were young, you know. And so so then he has this epiphany later that he could never love like 
Michael Fury could like how Michael Fury loved her. So so that is the the, the pivotal moment in the whole story um, where she hears this song. So mm-hmm. so I've recorded it and uh, on this black film stock. And so the final moment of the the film is when he's looking out into the the night sky and the snow is falling uh, faintly over the bog and um, uh, you meet just Shannon's waves, um, yeah, and and all over the headstones and the, and all the living and the dead, you know, the famous scene at the end. But then the camera pans up to, uh, and this is the notes from Tony Houston from the movie. Camera pans up to the night sky until flakes of snow fall directly into the lens, fade out the end. Mm-hmm. So, so my work, The Dead, is almost like a, a, an extension of mm-hmm. that last scene in the film, you know, where the camera pans up into the night, night sky. Um, Tom, I feel like there's a sort of interesting distinction to be drawn between how you and Susan respond to Joyce and potentially Ulysses as well, um, which is that... Susan engages very much both kind of specifically and sensorily, whereas at the risk of over civilizing this, uh, you you seem concerned with systems. <laughs> um, and and it seems to me that uh, I mean this is obviously very much a feature of your fiction, particularly your most recent novel, seeing systems in everything um, and the system behind what you're seeing. Um, but but particularly in your LRB piece, um, Ulysses to you is uh, well. I, I, I made a list: money and accountancy, human waste on an industrial scale, formal language, technology and radio, the history of literature itself. Um, how does something you know seeing a work as sort of as a whole like that uh, feed then into how you um, how you use it? Well, yes. I mean, Ulysses is about systems. Joyce was a big fan of Stern, and I think he conceives his own work very like Stern conceives Tristram Shandy, which is a, he calls it like an adventitious set of mechanisms all interlinked one within the other, such that even in digressing, it is progressive because one lever here causes a part and the other, you know, everything is on an ellipse that feeds back through every other part and they're all conjoined. And this is true, but I wouldn't want you to think that, that I see it as some kind of Hegelian abstract system. I mean, Joyce is an absolute materialist. And not just a materialist in the in the sense that he conceives of, of of the work of the structure of a novel mechanically, although he does. But he's a he's a base materialist. He's really into splattery, sloppy, messy. I mean, the system he's most fascinated by is the sewage mm. system. Keeps coming back in Ulysses, the cloacal system of the British Empire. Um, <laughs> but the whole of culture he sees as a sewage system. I mean, seriously, as everything is recircling, everything is being digested, excreted, and then re-ingested. Even though it's poisonous, it's being re-ingested. And I mean, this is what Stephen's doing, walking on the beach. He's literally treading over bloated corpses of dog carcasses and sewage and um, broken objects. And each of these objects is is a carries a cultural history with it. So it's a completely kind of Bataillon, like base material reading of history. And I think this is how he conceives language, you know, poetry as well. The, 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 as Stephen says, these heavy tides are language, you know, heavy of the past. But even when, you know, his models for generating um, 
writing in Ulysses, his metaphors for that are not airy and refined. It's, it's Stephen urinating. It's him smearing snot on a rock. It's Molly Bloom vomiting. I mean, regurgitating seed cake in, into Leopold's mouth. It's an incredibly um, abject but, but beautiful kind of moment of, of transmission. I mean, it's seed cake. It's dissemination, right? Mm. It's material transmission. Um, so... Yeah, it is. It is completely sen sensuous. When Bloom is in in the printing press in the Aeolus chapter, the, the the presses are shunting. They're going salt, salt, and he says everything speaks. I mean, it's like what Susan was saying about about her breath and the mm. the haptic sensuousness of of making music. It's not an abstract spiritual thing. And I love the way Susan uses, I think it's very similar to the way it's, 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 it's exactly the logic of Joyce. Everything is broken down and fragmented and recycled and repurposed and taken to another part of the system where it kind of like a virus reinfects that new kind of, I can't, causes a new mutation. I can't help but be struck by the contrast between your account of Ulysses and um, the spectacle that greeted us as we arrived at Shakespeare and Company <laughs> today. Uh, with with people dressed as mm. as characters as Joyce himself, um, and the kind of Bloomsday pageantry, which is obviously particularly a feature of how we think about Ulysses in a in a centenary year like this, um, I wonder how something so visceral um, can be uh, can also become something kitsch, mm. and how uh, and, and whether it takes. Um, I mean, this might be becoming pretentious, but whether it takes artists to recover that viscerality. To recover it from the recuperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, bringing another ghost of these yeah. parts of Paris, <laughs> Debord, into play. Sure, yes. I mean, there's a tendency to... I think one danger of how not to write after Ulysses, and I think writing, creative writing programmes have a lot to answer for here. You, you, There's a mistake to kind of think that if something looks a bit Joycean or Beckettian, then it must be really cool. And I think there's a tendency in recent years of seeing what are ultimately rather sentimental humanist novels mm. that look a bit Joycean and, and demand to be kind of revered. You, you know, content becomes style. <laughs> and I think that's the danger. When, when, when something is just reduced to style, it becomes kitsch. Mm. Um, and... And I think, you know, like Ulysses demands to be read carefully. It makes a huge demand, if, you know, to read it very carefully again and again. And, and, and if you actually do that, what opens up is, is not a, a style or an attitude or a particular kind of ideology or whatever. It's, it's again, it's a set of, of very protean, proteus-like, hard to grasp and endlessly changing possibilities that need to be interpreted always imperfectly mm. and that interpretation is is can be a work of art but it's not about um and that's sorry one other point would would be that i think joyce you know in his fascination with vico and the circularity of history we he kind of almost inaugurates a new type of cultural time where culture isn't moving in a progressive line even from one avant-garde to the next Right. So after John Cage has done four minutes, 33 seconds of silence, the challenge is not to do four minutes and 34 <laughs> seconds or even five minutes or 10 <laughs> minutes. It's it, it's to really rigorously attend to, to what provocation is being made there and work out how to respond to it, which will not be 
imitation. Susan, in terms of, I mean, so in your um, in your work, you've you've been inspired by and worked with Joyce uh, material six times. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Six times. Yeah. Um, it sort of it began with the dead and and um, and and something you've highlighted specifically about these projects is often that they're quite concerned with darkness and Joyce. And that is interesting to me because it seems to me this quite specific um, and sensory engagement with uh, with the material. Um, do you want to talk a bit about how darkness and Joyce have found their way into so many of your projects? Yeah, it's funny because I hadn't really made the connection until n- now. You know, I thought, hang on, appear to me, I see a darkness. They were they all take place in the dark, and I suppose when what happens when you um, when you can't see, you know, you you switch from the the visual to the oral, where mm. you're having to use your ears to just navigate the space and you let you know work out um, the the space with the acoustics and and. Um, so I mean I thought that that was interesting as well in Ulysses when I think um, when when uh, Stephen Dedalus was on the beach and he closes his eyes and you know so in a similar way I'm I'm as a, a visual artist working with sound that's what I'm um, I'm doing you know I'm I'm asking people to to listen um, and and so in the darkness. Um, it becomes, you know, this this uh, spectral voice in the darkness, especially my earlier works where I was was using my voice a lot. Um, the uh, the where the inspiration was coming from Joyce's love of of song, you know. Um, so, but I was also became fascinated by, um, and also Joyce is his passion for for uh, cinema. You know, he. He, uh, I mean, as as you know, he opened the first cinema in Dublin and uh, in the Volta, and and uh, he he convinced these two brothers, Italian brothers, to to open it and uh, to finance it, and so he, you know, he kitted out, employed staff, made the program. So he, and he was the cinematographer, he was the projectionist, you know, and and I thought I came across this really great quote as well from Joyce, whenever. I'm obliged to close my eyes. I see a cinematograph going um, round and around, and it brings back all these memories that I thought I'd long forgotten. Mm-hmm. So he cinema, and, and in fact, um, they even what considered making Ulysses into a, a film, maybe by Eisenstein or mm-hmm. Walter Ruttman. But in the end, it was Joseph Strick who did a great thing. But anyway, sorry, I'm I'm digressing. So from so but but cinema needs dark the dark as well. But I became really fascinated by Joyce's daughter Lucia, mm-hmm. and uh, Lucia Joyce who who danced here in Paris um, with Isadora Duncan and and uh, she uh, and she danced while while Joyce was um, writing about this female character. Uh, with wildwood eyes and primrose hair, and he used to call Lucia his Wonder Wild, and so, so she used to dance barefoot, and and uh, and she was their, their dance troupe were really connected to nature, and they used to call their um, 
their their performances, the Savage Vines or the Enchanted Garden or or um, the Green Panther, you know. Mm. So so she was a really, very passionate dancer. Um, but then um, but then sadly she became uh, th through mental illness she became uh, fell into darkness and obscurity and she was sequestered to different institutions and finally it. Um, Spent out the remainder of her life in, in North Northampton, you know, um, where she died. Um, so it's a very sad story for Lu Lucia Joyce. So what I did was make a work um, that was installed in uh, Tate Modern in the tanks, which is very dark, and um, and the the work was uh, dedicated. This is I see a darkness, I see a darkness. Yeah. and the. Uh, the work was dedicated to two Lucias, Santa Lucia, the patron saint of, of blindness and light, and to Lucia Joyce. And uh, yeah, and so there was three parts to the work, but I really worked with the the the, the acoustics of this, the very particular acoustics of this circular space, you know, and I created a whispering gallery with mm -hmm. the first part, which is this duet, which almost takes on her character, the words of, of um, Will Oldham's I See a Darkness, mm -hmm. which is where I got the title from. And um, and so that plays out in the space. But but I've, I made it into a whispering gallery. So it, it seems like the sound, the voice is completely disembodied, like it's coming from nowhere. And um, and yeah, so that's that,
Um, obviously, a place where some of these uh, these things coincide, coalesce specifically in Ulysses um, is in the sirens section. Um, and so, Tom, I wonder if you could read a bit from Sirens. Sure. Um, Simon Dedalus is singing Martha, singing Mapari from the opera by Flotel Martha. And, um, and Joyce writes of his voice, It soared, a bird, it held its flight, a swift pure cry, saw silver orbit leaped serene, speeding, sustained, to come, don't spin it out to long, long breath, he breathed long life, soaring high, high resplendent, a flame, crowned, high in the effulgent, symbolistic, high of the ethereal bosom, high of the high, vast, irradiation everywhere, all soaring, all around, about the all, the endlessnessnessness. So that specific passage from Sirens was then the basis of another work of yours. That's true, right? It was a, a work uh, called Appear to Me, Ma Paris, uh, which I made for a monastery in northern Spain called Silos. Uh, and uh, it, Lynn Cook uh, from Rennie Sophia commissioned it, and we went out there together to have a look. And we passed through this vulture sanctuary on the way and we stopped and we watched the vultures reeling around in the sky and it was incredible to see. And then we got to the monastery and in the cloisters there were these pillars with all these amazing carvings of winged animals, um, you know, griffins and, and uh, harpies, you know, which are a hybrid of a, a female and a bird and, and um, so a bit like sirens. And so... And then there were, the monks were also singing at the t that time we arrived and they were doing the Vespas. And um, so all these things were going on in my head when, when I, I started to think about what I might do there. And I would, then I was brought to this darkened cellar and, and said this could be a, a place that I could, I could work with. So, and that's what brought me to um, the, the, in fact, the, the passage that, that Tom just read out uh, from the sirens, uh, and I read um, so, uh, a long time ago that when uh, when Joyce wrote that, he had in his mind that it was to the tune of Salve Regina. So I thought that so that so that was the work. Then it was me singing. This uh, passage, um, it's sort of bird, uh, but to the tune of Salva Regina, and and then it had this connection with the birds and fly and and the, the birds that I saw in the in the in the in the cloisters, and and then it had that emanate from the, the darkness, and yeah. So I suppose in in the context of a monastery, it has other connotations of. You know, the, an apparition, or hmm. you know, but um, yeah. So that's that was what it was. And with and with Joyce um, and ideas as they come to you, is is it usually that way round that you you see a space and then it kind of triggers a memory of a text, or does it sometimes the other way round? Is it sometimes that it's mostly I've seen ninety percent. It's it starts with I have to go there and get the inspiration hmm. from the place, and uh, yeah. And then that kind of you have a kind of rolodex of of, <laughs> of cultural memories. That... Yeah, well, things come to my mind, you know, like, you know, the 
I mean, I used to sing Salvary Reed, you know, when I was in, you know, in the choir as a child. So I knew the song and then I was really interested in it. And of course, Joyce, he was he went to Jesuit school and he was f- very familiar with all those um, Gregorian chants as well. So, yeah. But yeah, it usually begins with the place, you know, what, what the what kind of... Um, but yeah, the atmosphere or the, mm. the, the you know the history or just anything really that kind of. Susan's going to sing "Appear to Me Live" in a in a in a bit, but before we get to that, Tom, I want to ask you. Um, I mean, the thing that I find fascinating about this particular work of Susan's is that it takes two component parts of Joyce's text and actually creates something new out of them. It, it sort of it, you can either see it as um, as realizing something that's implied, or you can see it as taking uh, a mutation. Exactly, yeah. a, a mutation of of, um, of the polyphony. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering whether I mean something that people always, often say about Ulysses is that you sort of create it as you read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if that uh, is is similar to how you feel yourself kind of writing sentences um, with Joyce's example in mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, Joyce is. Joyce thought that his would be the last work; it would be the end of the novel. <laughs> and and I think he was he was not just wrong; he was like exactly wrong. It's mm. it's almost like the first novel, or even beyond that. It's the source code; it's the possibility of the novel become legible, which mm. is miraculous. Um, and and um, so yeah, it's always there, but it's not something. Again, it's not something to be kind of flipped over or realized or it's not like some secret recipe and it's certainly not something to be imitated it's more it's more just that you suddenly become aware of a set of of other possibility i mean that's that's when you start writing and joyce is very often he's like macavity <laughs> he's always he might not be there but he's always there do you know what I mean? have you ever he's found like... <laughs> have you ever found yourself um i mean probably your answer to this question means you haven't but um specifically complete feeling like you're completing something um a, a, a trick or an experiment or a, a kind of um joyce in gambit um in what you're doing yourself i definitely take cues i mean the first novel i published remainder is very much about reenactment mm. and repetition and and you know i didn't think consciously oh i'm going to write a novel about reenactment because that's the new model that Joyce via Vico through Yates through Beckett gives us. I mean, it was never that deliberate, but I'm sure having been exposed to that stuff was very much there. But I was also just watching like football replays on TV, (laughs) slow repetition of the goal and then seeing how remembering how in the playground you do it another 20 times Mm. the next day and this this space of yeah repetition. And so, yeah, but so it's not really answering the question so it's no yeah. but i feel like i feel like it comes back to systems i feel i feel like there are <laughs> there are systems contained within joyce that are of deep kind of intellectual uh, inspirational interest to you and then there are systems yeah. in the wider world that you yeah, want to try and capture but they're not closed systems i mean yeah. joyce is about the breakdown of system yeah. i mean he makes to take accountancy you know he does meticulous accounting of everything in ulysses but but leopold bloom gets the final double entry account mm. wrong at the end of the book. So wrong that one editor actually went and corrected it. (laughs) Which is kind of like making Hamlet kill Claudius in scene three of Act One to correct Hamlet. I mean, the whole point is, is, again, and we come back to Tristram Shandy, there is a system, but it's broken. 
and thank God because that that breach is is the is is that rupture is the possibility of of something else happening. Mm. Otherwise, it would be the end of the novel and the end of history, and a very totalitarian world of the um, imagination. Um, I wonder if I could also just uh, ask you about sort of sirens specifically, and mm. and also um, something that you that you told me when we were thinking about this event, which is that that um, radio is where mm. is where yours and Susan's work meets. Yeah, we've do- we've both done projects, radio projects um, that were enormously indebted to Joyce. Maybe more the Joyce of Finnegan's mm-hmm. Wake, where radio really becomes a big presence. He writes about Marconi masts beaming timeless secrets to sisting Nova Scotia's listing sister ones, like radio and incest is basically <laughs> that where, where my novel C takes off. And I know Susan's done some wonderful projects of transmitting radio around the islands of Scandinavia mm. that were very consciously like indebted to to that right as well yeah the, the marconi wind sounds so generate and never die i mean that was something that really inspired me when i first came across that you know but marconi believed that he the pioneer of radio when so- sounds are generated they never die that they're uh, they're endlessly out there in the universe mm. you know and um so this conversation tonight will be will always be there, however faintly, you know. So that I found that very good. Yeah. It will also literally always be there on YouTube. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the 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 critic Jane Lutey, um, her take on Finnegan's Wake. She's edited a book called Broadcasting Modernism. But her her take on Finnegan's Wake is that it's basically a radio set. The head of the dream is like a radio set, and we're just going through the channels and getting all this interference. Mm. I think that's a very good way of understanding it. But I think that's already kind of implicit in in Ulysses, uh, the way the way music works. Mm. As it's always about, he, he he plays on the word coffin, right? When you lift up the lid of a piano, he always calls it the coffin of the piano, and it's it's very deliberate. Mm. It's ghosts, and they're material ghosts. You know, the voice has a timber. It's not, it, it's not abstract. It's a it's a physical thing mm. riding on the air like a stench or a ghoul or something, <laughs> and. Um, and it's being fragmented and, and passed around. And I think, yeah, in the sirens, you really see that. Yeah. The way he does that. Yeah, I suppose what I'm what I'm really interested in is the idea that because of, I mean, obviously, sirens opens with this famously esoteric um, passage that has been variously understood as kind of the musicians of the chapter warming up, the overture of the chapter, kind mm. of providing the, the uh, material that's then used. But what seems interesting to me about this kind of version of language is that to some extent um, it it makes more sense to interact with it um, in a way that isn't necessarily reading. Um, it, it sort of it sort of floats. Um, and, and I wonder whether whether there's anything in, in the way that sort of texts um, exist in your inspirations that, that that feel like that, whether they they're, they're not so much things things you read as things that kind of float into your consciousness when you're in a space well sure songs do yeah yeah like um, the like the the way that the um salva regina uh, uh, came to my mind when i was in the monastery but also you know under the bridge in munster the the um barker all from the tales of hoffman it came to my mind because of the words uh 
far away, far away, you know, people, the two people singing across water to one another. The, these words came to just kind of drifted in but, um, from again from a long time ago. Um, and I'm not knowing that it was actually uh, from this uh, German composer, uh, the Sparkle. I knew I didn't know who who'd written it then, but it's it's from the Lost Reflection, the Tales of Hoffman, and and uh, so there was all these crazy coincidences, like the fact that I was staring across the water at people staring back at me as if looking into my own at my own reflection, and and so that's where the the tales of the the Lost Reflection came. Mm-hmm. But but first of all, it was just these words, mm-hmm. far away, far away, you know, looking across the water at people looking back at me. So, yeah, sometimes it just yeah drifts in like that. Mm. Um, would you like to sing? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. I, um, I'll try. Yeah. So. It's so depart. It held its flight Us with pure cry So silver orbit leaps a ring Speeding sustained To come don't spin it out too long Breathe he breathe long life Soaring high, high resplendent aflame. Crowned high in the effulgence, symbolistic, high of the ethereal bosom high. Of the vast irradiation everywhere, so ring all around about the all. I certainly won't be able to read that passage in Sirens <laughs> without hearing that now. Um, I'm going to uh, just get my phone out because uh, it's on here that I'm being um, sent questions from the um, online audience. Uh, and so I'm just going to take a look at these. Uh, Revac asks, sound, image, memory, darkness. I wonder if the sound opens up endless possibility tying in with a possible open system, whether there is a kind of inbuilt openness <clears throat> through sound. Well, okay. Again, we need to read it carefully, right? And while Simon is singing, Bloom thinks, he, there's a very specific set of associations run through at that point. And he, Bloom has this reflection about music 
he he goes what well, hang on before that Martha Martha this the the opera that he's singing from is about someone who pretends to be someone else mm -hmm. Bloom thinks about Martha his pen friend who isn't called Martha she's pretending to be someone else he's pretending to be someone else he also remembers the first time he meets Molly over a musical evening where they're playing musical chairs which again is this kind of choreo almost like an algorithmic choreography for people to change places and substitute each other and then it cuts away to Boylan because Martha's also about infidelity and it cuts away to Boylan who's arriving to, to have sex with Bloom's wife Molly so all these different times and places are, are carried in on the music again it's like a, this elaborate um, constellated kind of set of movable parts that are all linked together around the song. The song is what makes that linking mm -hmm. possible. And then Bloom has this reflection. It's quite interesting. He, he has this vision of almost a platonic vision of a, of a mathematical universe, which song manages. He says, numbers it is, all music when you come to think. Two multiplied by two divided by half is twice one. Vibrations, chords those are. One plus two plus six is seven. Symmetry under a cemetery, the coffin again, under a cemetery wall. Then he thinks about guts. Then he says, um, but the numbers, but suppose you said, Martha, seven times nine minus X is 35,000, fall quite flat. It's all on, on account of the sound it is. I mean, he's, you know, he's not articulate enough to express it, but he's kind of, but Stephen does a couple of chapters later, while another piece of music is being played, again mechanically on a gramophone or maybe it's a pianola with a same a machine and he he suddenly has this vision of ellipses and a yeah a kind of platonic structure of the universe and he starts talking about commercial travelers greek heroes shakespeare gods all wandering around time and space which is obviously exactly what ulysses is and again it's the music it's the music that makes that manages this the mm -hmm. music underwrites this possibility of, of all this stuff happening of all this structuration <laughs> and then it and then Stephen although he is articulate enough is also massively drunk so he can't articulate it either <laughs> so it all collapses back into sounds and gastric burps and things then he goes outside to piss or something <laughs> Lawrence Lawrence Rainey in the LRB um, he talks about he talks about something very similar to to that sense of music um, but almost in the way of it overwhelming the the ability of the book to actually tell its own story. <laughs> um, I wonder if that's if 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 there is a sense sometimes of of that force kind of overwhelming itself, or do you think do you think it's always kept in check? No, no, I think it is overwhelming, and that's good. I yeah. mean, this is in Ulysses. Language, I, I I really dislike it when people talk about like teachers and critics talk about interior monologue to describe the unassigned first person narrative because I don't think it is interior monologue. It's exterior. It's embodied, encorpsed consciousness. Mm. It's it's language is just another organ in Ulysses, and and Ulysses is a genuinely obscene book in which organs are whipped out and flashed left, right, and center, and language is flashed left, right, and center. I mean, you see letters, H-E-L-Y-S, advertising Healy's stationers walking down the street, eating bread. I mean, the letters, the book's letters are eating and crapping. And, mm. and, and music is, 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 is one of the main kind of examples of it. It keeps rupturing the membrane, the skin of the book, 
and getting in the way excessively. And that's that's the nature of the book. And that's the nature of, you know, the world. And this is this is a good thing. It should not be kept in check. <laughs> I, I, it, was, it was described as a gigantic symphony. Someone wrote that. Mm. Um, a couple of questions about about darkness and light. Mm-hmm. So Bernard asks, um, isn't the the darkness of the book turned into light by the kindness of Bloom? Um, which obviously, I mean, it's it's more that darkness has has become connected with with your um, sense of joyce. But it is an interesting idea that that Ulysses is a novel in which darkness turns into light. Yeah, well, it's really. It's all in the daytime, mostly Ulysses. Yeah. It's it's more Finnegan's Wake that's the darkness, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, except for that bit in is when he's on the on the beach, you know, and he closes his eyes for me, and he closes. What does he say? He says, "Shut your eyes and see." see. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, that's that is really, as I said before, it's like something that I can really re- relate to, and you know, the way he describes walking with the stick, like as if blind, and you know, of course, Joyce connects to Joyce's uh, darkness and its own deteriorating eyesight. Um, but yeah, I suppose for me, my Joyce, uh, the inspiration, were mainly in the darkness, to be experienced in the darkness. But but Ulysses was more a book that was in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you buy that redemptive kind no, of there's No, there's, there's no redemption. There's, or, or like Kafka says, there's redemption, but not not for us. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a sad book because nothing, there is, a, there's this big epic Homeric, you know, almost religious outside, which remains outside. And the only way it connects with stuff in the book is as a negative. So it's, you know, Bloom is not Odysseus. Molly is not Penelope. A piece of dental floss is not an A.E. Olin harp string. And some spilled beer on a bar counter is not the foam on a siren's rock. Everything is affected as a kind of negative. And even this kind of, um, you know, some early, especially Christian critics of, of um, or champions even of, of Ulysses, tried to present it as a great redemptive reconciliation at the end. And it's not, you know, they haven't had sex for 10 years. They've got their dead kid hovering the bed between them and they sleep end to end nothing happens nothing is said she doesn't say yes yes is what she doesn't say Mm. she doesn't say anything um but an alignment has come into place an alignment of stars and and associations and symbols and possibilities you know history for stephen is is all the events that didn't happen but through retroactive arrangement you can almost astronomically you can see a constellated um coming together of, of a plane of consciousness of dead stars um, and that's a miracle but you can't realize it as as uh, in the here and now mm-hmm. it's, it, you can only discern it retrospectively and that's what the work of art's there for perhaps I want to give our very small in the room audience an opportunity to ask a question but while they're weighing up whether or not to put their hands um, I thought I'd ask you, Susan, do you expect Joyce to continue to to feed into projects? I do, especially after the conversations I've been having with Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's seen things in my work that connect to Joyce that I didn't see. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely, yeah, I think, I mean, it's been a while. Uh, but, so, well, since last one, 2010, mm. but yeah, I think. And 
and to be invited here today in this discussion, it's given me a lot of you know, food for thought. Do you, I mean, do you think the, the reason that um, it has been a while is because it's specifically your work with your voice that, that um, this, this kind of body of influence um, connects with? Yeah, I suppose I've been thinking, uh, I've been working more, I've continued to work with my voice, but in a more abstract mm. way. But Tom and I were discussing how, you know, this fragmented, the way I fragment the compositions and break them down and just focus on each individual tone. And it's more about the physicality of producing the the sounds. And, and uh, uh, it, so... For he could see Joyce in that, but I had never made that connection. You know, mm -hmm. maybe it was there, just it was un un unconscious. Mm -hmm. But so I think that's definitely something I'll, I would like to explore. You know, mm. um, but yeah. But one of the things that we didn't talk about was our our love of the you know in Finnegan's Wake, Anna Olivia Plurabel chapter, and, and Joyce's voice. You know, Joyce brings that to life when he. Uh, recites it i mean mm. it was written to be to to be spoken you know and that inspired a composer to put it to music and then that inspired me to make a, a work about that so uh, so joyce's voice is very and not, not only his voice but the how he writes you know it's the the, the how it flows and the, the phonetically and the, and the onomatopoeia everything is is it's very musical mm. uh, so so inspiring uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, any any questions from the uh, from the room? Was there, was there a hand up? Yeah. Well, banal question maybe. Uh, time uh, and Joyce. I've just been to an exhibition across the way on Proust and his life, and I wondered they must have they must mm. have uh, lived in the same city. Is there any interaction between them? That's that's the historical question. And is there any interrelationship between their senses of time? So th I think they meet once, very briefly, just before Ulysses is published. Sorry, just to step in, Tom, in case the, uh, that wasn't picked up by the microphones. Okay. The question's about Proust and Joyce. I think they actually met once, very briefly, before Ulysses was published. But by the time Joyce writes Finnegan's Wake, he's read Proust. And Proust appears in Finnegan's Wake. He talks about um, the Marceline last time we had our little recherche with. He was all dipping madeleines in something. <laughs> and he ties him in with Weinstein, um, Einstein, and Bitchson, Bergson. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Proust was important to him. But I think, I mean, Joyce has, I think the main models of time in Joyce are, by Finnegan's Wake, it's Viconian. It's it, the, the idea of um, history is a, a bit like for Marx or Nietzsche. It's, it's this repetition cycle, but it's not exactly repetition. A recorso is like a, a conscious repetition. You go over the, it's like a spring. You go over the same ground, but you're aware of it. So it has a historiographical sense, um, and that's already gestating in Ulysses with all their endless circulations, and you get phrases like history repeating itself with a difference when he gives. He remembers giving Parnell a hat back and then the way he corrected the hat on one of the mourners at Paddy Dickham's funeral. Um, but I think the main temporal model in Ulysses is this more Walter Benjamin type one of, of simultaneity, constellation, constellating all this stuff together. A plane of, of simultaneity emerges that can only be construed retrospectively. So Molly brings absolutely everything into alignment, lying in bed, 
but the stars have already faded, Stephen's already gone, it's too late, you know. The only good thing to come out of that day is, is Ulysses, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm grateful for that question because it uh, ties in nicely with uh, a reminder that this is uh, the first event in a series of events inspired by such things that happened in 1922 as the death of Proust. Also, the famous debate between uh, Bergson and Einstein, which um, we have a piece about in the in the book introduced by Tom. Um, I think we'll stop there. Uh, I'd just like to thank Adam, Sylvia and David from Shakespeare and Company for hosting us tonight um, and Tom and Susan for being so interesting and insightful and inspiring. Um, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll be back on the 23rd of February for an event about um, the dark night of the soul or rather the dark night of so three weeks of dark nights of the soul for Rilke, hurricanes that produced, uh, for Rilke that produced the Duino elegies and uh, the sonnets to Orpheus. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. But for the time being, good night. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.